Welcome, everybody. Uh, this is Second Saturday Astronomy presented by the Astronomical Society of Kansas City and Powell Observatory. Um, my name is Terry Connor. I'm the president of the Astronomical Society of Kansas City, and we are just so glad you could join us tonight, whether you are a member who has joined us. And you know what? I need to start recording. Let me make sure I've got that going here. Forgive me. All right, there we go. Um, if you've joined us as a member, we welcome you. And if you are joining us on Facebook Live, we uh, are glad that you happened upon us. And thank you for joining us this evening. Before we have our main speaker tonight, we have a guest who frequently honors us uh, by joining us with some inspirational introductory remarks. And so I'd like to turn it over to Dr. David Levy and welcome. What would you inspire us with tonight? Well, thank you very much. It's great to be here. I'm hoping that I will be able to, uh, to join you in person at some point in the future after our pandemic gets a little more settled than it is now. But my quotation that I'm going to offer you tonight is from Lewis Carroll. In 1871, he published Through the Looking Glass. And in Through the Looking Glass, he had a poem called The Walrus and the Carpenter. And here go two of the stanzas. The sun was shining on the sea, shining with all his might. He did his very best to make the billows smooth and bright. And this was odd because it was the middle of the night. The moon was shining sulkily because she thought the sun had got no business to be there after the day was done. It's very rude of him, she said, to come and spoil the fun. I don't think we're going to have any fun to spoil tonight. I mean, I think, whoops, back up, David. I think we're going to have a lot of fun, but neither the sun, with all of its sunspots today, I uh, counted over 60 this morning, and the moon will be able to spoil. They'll join us with the fun we're going to have tonight. And now back to you. Oh, thanks so much. It's always a joy to hear what you have to share, uh, the intersection of literature and astronomy. Well, tonight we are pleased to have our own Jackie Beischer join us um, to give a presentation that she has perfected over um, a few years on astronomy truths and myths. And Jackie has been a member of the Astronomical Society for many years. She's a previous vice president, a previous president of ASKC, and I'm not even sure what all else she did for ASKC before this. Um, but she's also uh, one of the officers in the um, International Dark Sky Association of Missouri. Um, so she's been involved with astronomy and science outreach for many years and we are just um, pleased to have Jackie join us tonight and I will stop sharing my screen so you can share yours. Well okay I hope I can do this right. Let's see let me first of all change this view. Full screen. Woo! Okay so you just go down here share screen. Mm -hmm. And this one, share. 
and from beginning. There. Great. Does it look right? Yes, it does. Okay. Well, um, many of you that are in the club have heard a version of this uh, particular program before. I uh, came up with it after years of presenting programs down at Powell Observatory and around the area. And I know that some people have uh, strange ideas about astronomy and they don't understand some of the basic concepts. Now, I'm sure that all of you out there already know this stuff, but I just want you to know that a lot of people don't. And the picture on your screen right there now is my favorite object in the whole universe, other than our own galaxy. And that's the Andromeda galaxy. It's called Messier 31. Charles Messier gave it that number back in the, uh, let's see, 1700s probably. I think so. 1700s, does that sound right? And uh, it, it, it's our sister galaxy. And it's, it's uh, moving at us at a great rate of speed. And it's going to collide with us someday. But we won't be around to witness that. And besides, it won't hurt a thing because the stars are just going to kind of go right by each other. And it's going to be a beautiful thing. But we won't be around to see it. But it's my favorite thing. It was my first really goosebump moment a long, long time ago out in the country when I saw it in really dark skies. It was obvious. It was beautiful. But more later. So um, tonight we're going to talk about astronomy in general and some of the truths and the myths. Because there's a lot of things, like I said, that people think it's astronomy, but it's that other word, astrology. So um, a lot of you probably, because you're here tonight, you, you have some pretty good knowledge in astronomy, but there's, there's places around the country and the world where it's pretty slim. So Americans, we, I found, have all levels of knowledge in astronomy, but hopefully more than this. And there's a book out there, um, and it's from, a, high, it's from a, a bunch of answers the kids gave on a high school quiz. And uh, it's, the book is called From F in Exams. And the test question that caught my eye was, what was Sir Isaac Newton famous for? Well, actually, he's my cat and he's sleeping right over there. But, oh, no, Sir Isaac Newton back, back in the days, back in the uh, uh, 1600s, 1700s. Anyway, he, uh, he was famous for inventing gravity. Yes, we had no gravity until he invented it. That's how we stay on the planet. That's what this student answered. Another question, is the moon or the sun more important? Well, it's kind of a trick question to some high school people. So here's, here's what they said. Well, the moon is more important because it gives us light at night when we need it. The sun only provides light in the day when we don't. So the moon is more important. And what this, t this tells me is that we need to study harder in the schools. That's for sure. Um, the worst untruth out there, the most crazy thing that people believe, and some of them seriously say they do, I wonder sometimes, is this one. The good old flat earth people. 
they there's they actually believe that that's what Earth looks like and is sitting out in the universe with the oceans pouring off the edges. And uh, of course, anybody that knows anything these days knows we're perfectly round, just like all those other planets. So um, there's another version of a flat Earth there. I've never actually run into any flat earthers, and I, I'm not sure how that conversation would go. So NASA put out this pin. I want one of those. In case you guys know where to find one, I'd love to have one of those pins. Um, and, and really, it was proved with the, one of the first uh, uh, visits to the moon, and they took the picture of this Earth in the distance. And it definitely shows the pretty round blue ball there floating in space, and it's definitely round. So now, something important you have to think about here, and that is prior to the period around the 15 and 1600s or later, there was no astronomy as we know it today. Because when all of the people at that time and all the years in the centuries previous, they go outside at night where there was no light pollution to speak of, and they look up at the night sky and they'd see a dome of, of dark over them. And it was black and there was little tiny pinholes of light, some bigger, some smaller, uh, in the sphere. And the sphere would be the same, you know, year after year, and it would turn over you during the night and it would change over a year's time. And they would they became comfortable with it and um and that is all they saw they didn't know what that was up there and it does if you just didn't know anything you just think about it you go out in the country and you look up at that and it does look like this big dome over you with holes pop through it and there must be light on the other side so um that is what people believed that that's what it was um now, astrology was around before we figured this all out, that it's, it's not a celestial sphere. And it is a study of the movements and relative positions of constellations and planets interpreted as having an influence on human affairs and the natural world. That's the nicest uh, definition I could find of it. And, but the problem is that astrology as we know it today in this country is based on 12 different signs of the zodiac um, but around the world and over the centuries and depending on where you were um, star groups were called by many different names over the millennia and and uh, depends on where you lived so here also is just kind of a recap of some of the major civilizations that you think of that knew something about the night sky looked at the night sky studied it and, and its movement, but it, the celestial dome, of course, that's all it was. And we, you know, we have the Incas in South America and the Romans in North Africa, West Asia, Europe, and Britain. You go back to 550 BC, you got Persia, Egypt to Turkey, and then China, of course. Going back to 3000 BC, you got the ancient Egyptians, and then uh, back to 550 BC, the Danubians in Europe. And 6500 BC, 539 BC, uh, you had uh, up to 539 was Iraq, Syria, and Turkey. And the first arrivals into the European area and the uh, 
um, you know, Turkey and all that area, um, was probably as early as 14,000 BC. And I had a, I had a report come across my um, computer today that they found, where was it? In Europe, I think it was in Germany, they found uh, a digging down, they found some bones of mammoths and that dated back 100,000 years. And some early human had taken it and had, had made markings on this piece of bone. So 100,000 years ago. But the point is, not one of them had a clue what that, what that was really in the night sky, not one. It took uh, guys like, uh, oh, well, here's, I forgot this slide. Now, around the world, uh, like I said, they would look at the star groupings and call it all different things. Now, the stuff in yellow there, or kind of white, is, um, uh, is that ours? Let's see, no, no, ours is blue, and the white stuff is from China, and how they would divide up the night sky. And the uh, arrowed line is the path of the sun through the that part of the sky. But that is just gives you an example, like we call it Cygnus the Swan up here, and they call it River Ford or River. I mean, it's just all different stuff, and it's for the same groups of stars. And this happened all over the world. I mean, the Chinese had their own constellations, the Australians, uh, the Incas, the um, Egyptians. It was different everywhere you went. So the signs that we know and that we people use for astrology these days have, were uh, took a long time to be settled down to those. Now this is just a star chart to look at the night sky and, and again to show you that of course you can see this little dipper here Ursa Minor and then over here you, you can see that the dipper part of the Big Dipper and the handle goes down but it's also called the Big Bear Ursa Major and Ursa Minor a little bear. Do those look like bears? Not to me. Cepheus that looks like a house but that's supposed to be a king sitting on a throne. And Cassiopeia up here is a princess. Now there's kind of some human structure to that, but does this look like a camel? Does this look like a fox? No. So this is just what we ended up with here in, in, in the European countries. Um, by the way, this is looking north. And uh, if you ever see the Big Dipper and you're, that's your key on having how to find where true north is because if you if you use the big dipper like this and you look at these two stars right here you this you go point out of the dipper and over this way and the first major star you come to is polaris and that is the north star so that's real easy to do okay and also in north america the uh big the dippers are always up just they move around during a year's time around Polaris. But you can always find them unless there's lots of light pollution. Sometimes we from Hal Observatory in Lewisburg, we can't always see Ursa Major. And there is the so-called Great Bear. Just so you get how they got that name. Um, but like I said, everybody thought this was a big sphere and there was holes in it. 
and it was all the same distance away up there. But the main stars of the Big Dipper, as an example, are varying distances away. You can see here uh, uh, Alcor and Mizar are, are this far out. Let's see, that is like 88 light years. These are closer. And, and then you got them way out here at 105 light years and 210 light years. Now, a light year is about 6 trillion miles. So uh, that's a long way out. So you take 6 trillion times 100, and that's where some of those stars are. But they're all varying distances. And all the constellations are that way. They just look like they're on the same plane. Uh, I threw this one in just for fun, but there's, that's a picture taken from up on the Atacama Desert in um, Chile, in South America. And um, they get to see part of the Milky Way galaxy that we never get to see because it's in the way. We, we, we're ne the North America, we're always turned away from that. And there's, it's a beautiful sky down in South America. But the closest star to our galaxy, to us, is, I mean, to us, not the galaxy, is Proxima Centauri. It's in our galaxy. Everything you see in that picture are uh, millions of stars that are in our galaxy. And it's in the constellation of Centaurus. It's uh, 4.2 light years away. Now that's the closest one. And uh, that's about 25 trillion miles. And then I put all the zeros on it there so you can get that idea of how big a number that is. It's a long way. Whereas our moon is like only 238,000 miles away. Our sun is 93 million miles away from us. So this is the closest star. I know it blows your mind, doesn't it? Does mine even then. So then probably in, in, in Europe and stuff, they kind of settled down on 12 constellations that uh, moved through the main part of the sky. Um, during the year. So like here you are on Earth, and if you could see which constellation the sun appeared to be in on the day you were born, then that is your sun sign, okay? That's, that's what your sign of the zodiac is. And according to the astrologers, it's all set up nice and neat and pretty like this, where the Earth is moving around and it comes over here, you could see the sun sign for that would be Libra, and then move, as the moon moves over here, it would be Scorpius, Sagittarius, etc. So that design, uh, defines your sign of the zodiac, which is supposed to mean something. <coughs> anyway, but the problem is also that things shift during a few years' time. And the earth wobbles like a top. See this, this line down here? So it just kind of wobbles so that the line going from north to south through earth kind of wobbles around. <coughs> and it creates on the night sky this, this circle. So about um, six, 8,000 years ago, the, the, if we looked up in the north, we would see, instead of the Little Dipper, we'd see Thuban. Thuban was the North Star. And, but now, of course, we see it, and it's uh, Polaris. 
And in another 13,000 years or so, <coughs> excuse me, I'm gonna have to take a little drink here. Um, it'll be the star Vega, which shifts everything around. And so that would really mess up those uh, signs of the zodiac. Um, now, I put together this chart a few years ago using different people's information. And I have this, by the way, on an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper in my computer. So if you want a copy of this, I can email you one. And my email address will be on the very last slide tonight. So a comparison of astrological and astronomical maps. So here's the winter, fall, summer, spring, and here's the months, and there's the so-called the astrological signs. And here's how the sun moves, you know, through all these constellations like so. Okay. Now, do you see a problem here? Like, look how long it's in Virgo. And then it goes into Libra. And then what's this? Scorpio It's just, the sun is in Scorpio only four days at the end of November. And then it moves into Ophiuchus. So, I wish I was born in the early part of December. Now here's the real dates, and, and this is all on one page, the previous slide and this one. So if Ophiuchus, if you were born between November 29th and December 17th, you can go around and tell everybody you're an Ophiuchan. That'd be cool. But you aren't whatever they said it, you, you are, which is the biggest um, disproof of as astrology. So now also um, in the night sky, there's there's five so called the early people, as they looked at the night sky, they looked up and they saw five stars up there that didn't stay put. They were moving around slowly all the time, some faster than others. And um, they didn't know what th those meant, but there was five of them. So the um, Greek word for, uh, whoops, sorry, for a wandering star is planet. So that's where they get their names, planets. These five so-called stars, um, there were some of them were bigger and brighter than any planets, but that is what, where, where it comes from. So let's go back to around 1610. Uh, before that, you had a famous dude named Copernicus, and then Tycho Brahe, Johann Kepler, and they and and so forth. And finally, Galileo came along, and we all know his story. I hope um, Copernicus was the, back in the 50, late 1500s, like 1570s. He was figuring this out pretty easily. He was thinking, man. He says, you know, the way those those planets move they're they're not uh, they're planets like we are we are a planet like those but he was afraid to say anything about it because he was getting deep trouble with the powers that be so he had a friend called Redicus, and Redicus said hey you know why don't i just write a little pamphlet a little book and put it out there and see what happens see see what the people would say so Redicus wrote this book and it's kind of a what if kind of thing and the way he, he was very careful how he worded everything and he published it 
And you know what? There wasn't a big problem with it. And uh, so, um, by the way, uh, the first book that Copernicus did write, there's a copy of it here in Kansas City at Linda Hall Library. And a few years ago, they found an original book of the one that Redicus wrote. And they also have that down in the library. They paid more for that book than they've paid for any other book in their library. And you can go down there and see it if you want. You just have to call ahead and ask if you can see some of these books. Um, they have a first, first edition of uh, Galileo's Sidereus Nuncius when he finally just came out with it about, hey, those are planets like us and we're a planet and, you know, he, and he got in trouble with that, but they have a first edition of that. And it's, it's been documented, but Galileo has written in the margins on several of the pages. He had to correct some things on some of the early printings and he just hand wrote. And again, that's down at Linda Hall Library here in Kansas City. It's one of the top, it's definitely in the top 10, maybe the top, top five of science libraries in the whole country. Um, let's see. When Galileo, he's the one that really busted through the, the problem because he made a telescope. And when with a telescope, he was watching Jupiter. And when he watched Jupiter, it had, there was Jupiter's the round circle. And these are some of his sketches that are in Sidereus Nuncius. And the little star-like things around it were moving. And this was, wow, this was really something. Nobody had ever seen this before. And, and he noticed that they moved and he'd study it night by night. And finally he said, oh my gosh, Jupiter is another planet and it has its own moons. Wow, you know, this was a big deal, big deal when, and then he published this information in Sidereus Nuncius. And um, by the way, there's a, a copy of it that I have that I'm going to give to the Kansas City, uh, the old, uh, Astronomical Society's library. It's, it's a translation into um, English and it's quite an interesting read just to put your mind back in those days. Um, so really folks, astrology, there's nothing, there's no truth to any of that. Where a particular uh, configuration of stars are in the night sky has nothing to do with your life, who you are, what you'll be, or any of it. Except I do have to mention this because it's been in several of the books I, I have, where I was doing research on this. And that is that they've done some studies on when people are born. And if, if a baby, for instance, is born in December in the Northern Hemisphere, and it's a tiny baby during the winter months, it's, it's kept confined, you know, it's wrapped up in blankets, it's inside, it doesn't see much sunlight, et cetera, et cetera. Generally, generally speaking, those babies are sometimes more in introverted. They're not as outgoing as other babies that are born in the spring. And 
you know, and get their early life is in, in the summer and they aren't confined by clothes and they can kick and play and their parents probably take them outside. And, uh, and sometimes, generally speaking, they, they've seen this, this small, this, they can prove it, that babies born then are more outgoing, maybe. How about that? So um, I'm sorry, folks, I don't look at my horoscope in the paper anymore, ever. So are there any questions out there? I can't tell. No, we're good. So stars, the sun is a star. A lot of people don't know that. When we own Powell Observatory in Lewisburg, Kansas, and normal times it's open every Saturday night, May through October. But this year we, we started in May and we opened it the first and third Saturdays. And that's been working out pretty good. What we do is uh, if you come out to Powell, we don't have class uh, a program in the classroom anymore, but we have it all set up outside with projectors and stuff. And we have a beautiful lawn around the observatory. And uh, that's where we give our programs. And then one of our members, David Kelly, he has a camera that he can put on the big 30 inch telescope and it projects what the telescope is seeing by Wi-Fi out to the field again. And we project it up on a screen so you can see whatever the telescope is looking at because we can't have a big line of people with because of COVID and such, and we can't give programs in the classroom. So we all do it outside. So obviously, if it's raining and stuff, uh, you could stay home. But the sun is a star. And uh, can you wish on a star? Sure, you can wish on your couch, your chair, that tree. You can wish on anything you want. But wishing on a star doesn't get you anything. It's just a great big ball of burning hydrogen. Um, and then we have people come out there and they say, well, you know, I'd wish on that star up there, but it probably is not there anymore. People get the wrong idea and they think lots of stars, you know, are gone already. But they're not. Stars live a long, 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 long time. And uh, they either just run out of uh, stuff to burn or they kind of blow up at the end go nova or even supernova. So we have a lot of people think that a lot of the stars that they're looking at are not there anymore. So we have to assure them that, yep, they probably are. So oh, I already said that stars die by running out of fuel. So for instance, this is the Crab Nebula. And it blew up. It was a star that blew up in the year 1054 AD. And that's what it looks like today. The central star in there, I don't think we can even see, but that's all the gases it threw off, and those are expanding out into the universe around it. And there's a lot of these supernova remnants out there. Now, this happens to be Messier object number one, M1. Um, the first supernova that mankind uh, recorded was in the year 185. The last supernova that we recorded in the Milky Way was in the year 1604. Um, I don't, I haven't updated this, checked the internet lately, but <clears throat> this was true within the last year. There's only 39 recorded supernovas that we've seen and only 10 of them in our galaxy. 
So we're talking other galaxies everywhere that we look. That's all that we've observed. So a star blowing up is kind of rare. So you can be assured that most of the stars you see now are going to be there until the day you die. And there, there you go. 99.99% of the stars you see are still there. So now, can you name a star after somebody? I know a lot of people in, that I've run into over the years have done that for a loved one. You know, I had a grandfather that I loved dearly, and I bought him a star a long time ago. But you know what? You can't really do it. It's not possible to do that. Not really. But there's several companies out there that, that make their living that way, and they they send you a cool certificate and a certification that the star is now named after you, and they they tell you where it is. And we have a lot of people that come down to Powell that want to see their star, and they really think that it's now has their name on it. No, it doesn't. So don't do that. Um, now, names of stars and asteroids and comets. Um, if you discover a comet, chances are it could be named after you, but you have to apply. So if you find a, a great big comet coming this way, and you can, you can, you can call in, in to the uh, International Astronomical Union and, and ask them, to, can you name it after yourself? And, and you, generally speaking, that's exactly what happened. So the names of stars generally are not about after people. Asteroids, yeah. Some of the asteroids are named after people in our club because they worked hard and they have stuff named after them. Um, the North Star. Now, the North Star, a lot of people come out there and they say, okay, out to Pell, and they look and say, where, where's the North Star? You know, where is it? They think it's got to be the brightest one because it's so important. No, it's not. Is it's really not, and it, it's so either the 49th or 50th brightest one up there in the northern hemisphere. So it's not that big of a deal. Hey, but here's a cool picture. You can do this yourself if you have a, a camera and a tripod, and you can open open the uh, the, the opening. What is it called? Oh well, nobody's here to tell me. Uh, and just let leave the shutter open. That's the word. And and just take a picture for, you know, maybe 45 minutes an hour. As the Earth turns on its axis, the starlight makes a trail on your film. So these are all what we call star trails. And the one here in the middle, that's the star trail that Polaris makes. So even Polaris is not at the exact point of true north. Um, but it's close enough because that's, People just need to know that, generally speaking, just so they can know which way to walk home. So, um, the sun is yellow. A lot of people think that that's its basic color. No, it's white. Um, this, I won't get into too much detail on this, but this is the electromagnetic spectrum, aka energy, and light, visible light, is just right here in the center part. This is law, little tiny area right there. But if we just spread that out and look at it, the ultraviolet or purple light is down this way, and, and then visible light is here, and then you get over to the infrared, which is basically heat. And so this is 
a shorter wavelength and this is a longer wavelength. Got it? So lately we've had all this smoke in the night in the sky and the sun has been some beautiful colors and you can start watching it as it gets close to the horizon and it'll go through all these shades of yellow and then oranges and reds. It's, it's just awesome. And that's because uh, those light that part of the spectrum are longer wavelengths and they can get through all that muck to your eye. So the sun is yellow. No, the sun is white. Now, why do stars twinkle? Well, this is just a, a drawing I found out on the internet and that there's a star right there and and it's actually it's a point of light. All the stars are pinpoints of light, but they might have I have more of them about this in a minute, but it when it shines through the atmosphere. It it kind of bounces around around a little bit when it hits their air molecules and that causes a twinkle now. If the star is close to the horizon, let's say you're standing right here, you look at this star and then you can look at that star. And this star over here has its path coming in is much longer. So it's jumping around a whole lot more before the light gets to you. So it really, really twinkles. How about that? Um, let's see the atmosphere. Oh, and this next one here, here's just a little, just a little video of the light coming down from a star and coming into the earth's atmosphere and it just shows it jumping around so that if you are standing right there the light is is well it's twinkling that's what it's doing it's twinkling that's how it happens and uh the elizabeth brown who introduced me um She's, she gets a question out at a PAL Observatory quite often by, why do stars have points? A lady wanted to know one night, what's the difference between a four and a five point star? Well, stars don't have points. Um, they're all tiny little, or some are brighter than others, but photons of light pass through the atmosphere, but the, it, it bends the light and forming a diffraction pattern. No two people see it the same way. But starlight through the Hubble telescope, for instance, will diffract at each strut, or each, uh, there's struts holding things in place. And that holds the secondary, or that holds the secondary mirror, creating a four-pointed star. Or it can be a three-pointed star. Depends on how many internal struts are in the, the instrument that you're using. Okay. So let's move outside and I know people say this all the time. I saw a shooting star last night. Let's hope not. We'd be in deep trouble probably. Um, they're not stars. They look like a star shooting across the sky, but really they are uh, meteoroids. Now this is a time lapse here that shows uh, quite a few of them coming in over a period of time. And sometimes individual meteor meteoroids are bigger than others and they kind of flare up a different way depending on their composition. But they're meteoroids in space and they're meteors when they come through our atmosphere. And it's really fun sometime to get out in the dark countryside and sit and watch a nice meteor shower. I think if you stay tuned with the ASKC, 
uh, we'll tip you off if there's one coming. And they all seem to generate from one particular point in the night sky. Now this is because Earth is, is moving through uh, space and it's, it's heading this way exactly. So as we move that way, this seems to be the radiation point of all the stars or the meteoroids. So meteor, meteor, those are meteors when they come into the atmosphere. And um, it's always best to see a meteor shower after midnight because then you're going to see more of them that way. Um, okay, so. What do they call a meteor that actually hits Earth? How about that? Okay, it's a meteorite. And sometimes bring us, people bring us rocks that are not meteorites. And of course, those are meteor wrongs. But here's an example of two. Uh, the one on the left is, is, has more iron and nickel in it than the one on the right, which is more stony, but it probably has some iron in it. It's, told that most all of the meteorites that we find on Earth have some iron in them. So if you're suspicious at all and happen to have a magnet, just hold that up um, to, the, to the rock and see if it sticks to it. Um, if you bring your children out to PAL Observatory on a Saturday night when we're open, all the children get their own little meteorite in a little case. And I should have one of those in my hand so I can show you. But I don't have one. Um, okay. And people actually think that uh, there's a dark side of the moon. Well, you know, it's just like Earth. One half of us is, is, is light lit up at one time, and the other side is dark at one time. But here, here's a good picture. So here's Earth. And if it's new moon, here we are, and we, can, we can't see the moon at all because it's in front of the sun, which is way over here to the right, way over here. When that's, we can't see it at all. So now let's move to the first part. It's a waxing crescent, you know, wax on, wax off. Yeah. So if you were standing right here after sunset, you could look towards the setting sun, which is, you know, way over here, and you would see this little crescent moon. See here, that little crescent moon. Now, as the moon moves around on its orbit, uh, uh, sometime later, you'll after sunset, you'll see it like that, and then, and then it's three then it's three quarters of the way, and then it's a full moon when it's op totally opposite, and so forth and so on. So, that's what's going on with the moon. So, the far side away from us is not dark. It moves around the the moon just like on Earth but it just takes a whole month for it to go through a day. So the moon moves 2290 2, miles per hour. It takes approximately 28 days to orbit Earth. And it varies from 226 to about 252,000 miles away because its orbit around us is not a circle, it's more of an ellipse. Now this is exaggerated. But when it's closest to us, it's called perigee, and then when it's far away, it's called apogee. 
And actually, it's, it's not just so simple either, because this elliptical orbit kind of shifts around, you know, as the Earth moves around the sun. So it gets confusing, but anyway. Ever heard of a blue moon? There's a song. I won't sing it. You wouldn't like that. But a blue moon is actually just the second full moon in a month's time. And it's not blue. It's not blue. A blood moon. Now, the moon will look reddish due to a thick atmosphere when, like I said, how the red light comes through because it has longer wavelengths. So we've seen some beautiful setting suns this, this year, this summer, um, that just looks so almost just red, totally red there in the West. And, and that's a lot of that's due to all the, the smoke from the fires out West, unfortunately. Um, but that's what they call a blood moon. Now, black moon, nope, it's not black. It's just a designation for no moon in a calendar month. So it takes it about 28 days in between its phases. So in February, you know, theoretically, we could not have a full moon in February. So they call that the black moon. Uh, a green moon. How many of you had a green moon? There's this, this email that comes out off and on. And it, uh, here it is to see. On April 20th, several planets are going to align, which will cause the Earth's moon to appear green for about 90 minutes. Well, that sounds real, doesn't it? This phenomenon is known as the green moon, and this is total bunk. And it has something to do with marijuana and the smoking of it. Uh, and uh, I would just uh, not bother sharing that one. So no green moons, a super moon. I know that the news media make a big deal about these super moons. It's when a full moon happens to be within 90% of its closest point to Earth in its orbit. Now, so the, the moon is an ellipse, so it's going to be closer to us at one point than another, and that's when it's just within 90%. It appears a whole lot different. Um, we, uh, we missed our Missed them this year. Well, you did tonight because they were in April and May. But you can get on the internet and find out when the next one's going to be. I didn't do that. Okay. Now, this is just an artist's rendition of how the how different in size they can be if uh, you know a full moon occurs at different different uh, moon when it's close to us or it's far away. It could be fourteen percent bigger and 30% brighter than when a full moon appears when it's close to us. So it's, it's a big deal, and it does have a difference. Now, the moon illusion is, I know many of you have seen a, a full moon rising in the east some night, and you look at it and you think, whoa, that looks so big. And it does sometimes. It really does but it's totally an illusion. So the next time when you see a full moon coming up and you think that is just huge, you put your arm at a distance and you hold your thumb up to the moon and see how big it is against your thumb. Your thumb should just about cover it, okay? 
Then wait a couple hours until the moon gets up, you know, halfway overhead or over here someplace. Now do that same thing again and hold your thumb up and it's the same size. It blows your mind. Um, this is, a, of course, with uh, with a camera, you can make a camera look at anything, but this is, uh, you can do a lot of tricks with cameras. But if you look at this picture right here, um, I'm telling you, you can hold up something to the screen right now that you're looking at, and both of those moons are the same size. So it's all a trick of seeing something close to the horizon. Um, yeah, it's, it's really weird. Your brain's a funny thing. But those are both the same size, I, I, I swear. So here we are back at the Andromeda Galaxy. Now, if you come down to PAL Observatory on a first and third Saturday night, We've been looking at Andromeda. It's beautiful overhead uh, into the evening, probably 11-ish. Um, you can't see the detail on it like that, but you can see, it's, it depends on how, how dark the skies are that night, but it's a beautiful thing to see. And uh, there's a lot of things you can see through the telescope at Powell. It's, it's an amazing instrument. Um, Here's kind of an artist's rendition of what our Milky Way galaxy looks like if we could go out in space. Like if we were on a planet in Andromeda, what would the Milky Way galaxy look like? Well, I'm not sure if it's face on or edge on, or I'm not sure of that orientation, but this is the sketch of what they think the structure of our galaxy basically is. So we're out here in this spiral arm right here. And you know these are star forming regions and you can see the spiral arms and we can look to the center and see the bulge of the uh, middle of the galaxy. But I'm telling you folks, we can't see any of this stuff over here, none. So we're just guessing when we try and draw a picture of it. Now we have a pretty good idea from this on this side of the galaxy the basic structure, uh, more or less, but anyway, um, and this, this time of the year right now, if uh, the galactic center is right in the south, it's right here. So if you can look to the south when it gets dark, about 10 o'clock or so, and you'll see the teapot of Sagittarius. Well, the center of the galaxy is just right off here, it, it, off the tip of the teapot. Uh, and so that's the very center of the Milky Way galaxy. And you see the Milky Way galaxy here. And what we're, what we're doing is we're looking in towards the center of the galaxy and we're seeing it edge on and, it's, and it goes across the night sky. It's beautiful. And then on the other side of the galaxy, uh, on the other side right here of the center, you have Scorpius. It's a really easy constellation to see. It's brightest star is Antares and it comes whoop, makes looks like a scorpion ah we're getting towards the end in case you were wondering but i have to always show this this picture here and this is a uh, showing light pollution in in the sky now the international dark sky association was formed about 
uh, let's see, 30 some odd years ago by two guys that were, one was an amateur astronomer and the other one wasn't, David Crawford and Tim Hunter. And um, they founded it to start fighting some of the horrible light pollution that we have these days. And uh, you take a look at some of your outdoor lights and see if you can't keep the light down and don't let it go up in the night sky. Don't let it shine at your in your neighbor's faces. It's, 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 it's not nice. Anyway, but you can see Kansas City here and the white means a lot of light pollution. And, and the further you get out in the red and then yellow and then green and blue, it's less and less and less. So you look out in Western Kansas and you get out here into the grays and yeah, that's a good place to go stargazing compared to around here. But um, you can't really see much of the night sky until you get away from the night light pollution. Um, see, yeah, and here's a close up. Uh, in Overland Park, it's pretty bad. And, and actually, it's probably much worse than this now. This, this particular slide is a few years old. But here's Lewisburg down here. Now this, this is why Powell Observatory is down there. It's because we had to put it someplace where the sky was dark so people would be able to see things. But I'm telling you, Overland Park has grown a lot in the last 20, 30 years. Powell was opened in 1985. And so um, we can't see stuff like we used to. So it is in a city park there in Lewisburg. And we have started a campaign to build a new observatory complex. We found some ground over here on the south side of Lewisburg out in this green area, which is better. And uh, we've started a fundraising campaign. So if you're interested in that, you can also email me. Uh, my, I'll give my address here at the end. But um, yeah, that's what's in our plans. But we'll be at Powell Observatory for a while. And there it is, you know, we have, that's a 30 inch diameter mirror at the base of that down in here. And uh, the dome is open here and we're looking out, of course this is daytime, but then we have this little roll off roof observatory out here and there's two telescopes in there that are looking at the night sky while you come out. And these days, uh, David Young, our observatory director, he's he got these two big screens uh, made and they're like four foot by six foot, something like that. And they're mounted here on, on the fence. So we have our equipment here and we put it on, uh, put it up here on these two uh, screens. And then you're sitting out here in the lawn and you can just sit there and, and look at the program. And then to your right over here on the other, on this area down to the right, um, a lot of the club members are there with their own telescopes set up. So um, you can look through those telescopes. It's outside. So anyway, so I do have to also say that, you know, Powell Observatory is owned and operated by the Astronomical Society of Kansas City. Um, we're a 501c3 not-for-profit educational outreach organization. So if you wanted to donate some money to us, we would sure appreciate it. And it's totally tax deductible. And that means I told you the last slide would have my email address on it. And there it is. So um, 
and there's Andromeda again. That's my fave. Um, by the way, to early astronomers up till about 1930, they thought that this object here was is was in our own galaxy. Um, there, they only thought there was one galaxy, the one we were in. But because of a, a relationship on, on a variable star, um, which was developed by a lady at the Princeton Observatory, Henrietta Swan Levitt, and she came up with this relationship on variable stars, and you could you could determine the distance to it. So then, a few years later, Edwin Hubble was out there in California, and he he found a variable star. I think it was up in this area, and he was studying the variable star in this what he thought was a nebula. And when he did the math and the computations, it was much further out. It couldn't possibly be in our galaxy. So that was the first galaxy ever discovered. So um, are there any questions out there at all or? Huh? Well, can you hear me, Jackie? This is I Sarah. can. I can. Okay. Um, I ha just have a couple of comments from people who have commented on watching live on Facebook. And we had a comment, thanks for the program. Another one said, thanks for presenting facts to dispel long-term false ideas like astrology. Yay! <laughs> I just got my SQM, which I think stands for Sky Quality Meter, and I'm <laughs> learning how to record data. So that kind of ties into your... Um, light pollution slides that you were yeah. showing us just uh, near the end there. We okay. did have a question um, from John Stower. So why do meteorites have a propensity to contain high concentrations of iron? Well, that's a good question and I don't know the answer, but they don't have all of them. I mean, there's a lot, I think more of them are stony meteorites. But, um, you know, they're just remnants of the creation of the galaxy that are all out there. And, uh, you know, they're just smaller hunks. Bigger hunks are things like um, asteroids in the asteroid belt. So, yeah, they just, uh, it's really cool. That's the best way to, uh, to, check, to check one. I had a girlfriend, I will tell you this quick story. I had a girlfriend that went up to Iowa to see her parents one weekend and then she got off the main highway and she was on a on a county road trying to get to her grandparents and um, a freaking meteorite comes flaming in and it landed in this field just next to where she was. Mama scared her. And I said, did you stop? And she said, no. I said, oh my gosh. I said, you know, Meteorites are, are really, really valuable, and they can be very expensive. They aren't cheap. Uh, and did I mention that every child that comes out to Pal Observer gets to go home with their own? Yes. Yes, I thought yeah. Yeah, I did mention it. Yeah. Yeah. So she she went up to see her mom again, and she went to look, but the farmer had plowed the field or something like that, so there was no way she could figure out where it was. So lost lost that chance. I think someone who was a um, uh, who searched for meteorites once mentioned that if you do go out into the countryside and you see a farmer, you might ask them 
if they have plowed rocks over to a side somewhere, you know, get them out of the way, they're plowing that you might check for meteorites that way. I've always kind of wanted to do that, but I've not had the opportunity to, to ask. And uh, the answer to John Storer, probably if David Young was watching, he could probably tell us. Um, well, I can tell you what I've found on just Googling it. Uh, yes. that most iron meteorites are thought to be the cores of asteroids that melted early in their history. Um, when, when elements decay through radioactive decay, they decay down until they get to a stable element, and iron is one of those stable elements. Um, oh. Iron that the, the asteroids contained, uh, being dense, sank to the center and formed that metallic core. Oh. Wow. I'm so, a cores of asteroids. Yeah. Hey, a, a few years ago, we were at a regional convention up in Iowa City, and uh, this farmer came in, and he wanted to show us the meteorite he found, and it was like this big, bigger than a football, you know, but about the same size, and, and just kind of oval, and he told us how uh, he and his son were out plowing the field one day, and uh, they were going down the field side by side, and then they had to stop to go in and have lunch. And when they came back out, right in front of where the tractors were was this big hole, like, you know, something had blown up. And so they looked down and there was, there was this meteorite. So he took it into uh, the University of Chicago a few years later and, um, and asked them, you know, test, is this really a meteorite? And they said, oh, yeah. And, um, and uh, they, they wanted to buy it from him, but he said, oh, no, he said, I'm keeping it. So he kept it for a while. And then a few years later, he went to the University of Iowa, where he's from, and he brought this big meteorite in there. And uh, by the way, the, the number they were talking about to him was they'd give him, I think it was like $20,000 for the meteorite. So he goes into the University of Iowa, like many years later, and he says, well, do you want to buy it? And they, and he got $200,000 for that meteorite by holding on to it year, for those many wow. years. So that's pretty cool. 200,000. <laughs> should, should we all be so lucky? Exactly. So. So I, I do not see any more comments. We got one more comment that was just thanks for the presentation, Jackie. We appreciate the research that it took to get to this, you know, to get this information and some great graphics there that explained things. Well, good. That was that's my idea. Yeah. yeah. So all okay. right. Well, glad y'all came. Yes. We thank you for watching tonight. And just a couple of reminders for those of you who joined us. Uh, Powell Observatory is open on the first and third Saturday. So our next opening would be next weekend. I believe it's September 18th is the date. And uh, it opens at 7 p.m. since the sun is uh, setting a little bit earlier now. The topic, I believe, is going to be searching for signs of life. So if you're one of those who's ever wondered about, are we alone in this universe? Uh, come and hear what our speaker has to say on hey. how we're searching for that. Yeah. Oh, Terry, I just saw this other um, question in here or comment, and uh, it's about... Uh, the presentation would be good to use in like local high schools and stuff to encourage youth to study the stars. 
um, and that's true. And you know, the ASKC has always been going. And I do, and several other of us. Often we go to schools, we go to uh, over fifty-five groups. I mean, I've gone to all kinds of different groups and given uh, astronomy presentations. And a lot of we have a whole bunch of different ones, but I think this is a really good one to dispel some of those distruths dis out there. So, but of course, with COVID and stuff, nobody's having us in. Well, you know, maybe things will eventually open up. We do have a request. I was really delighted. We got a request from a Blue Valley um, High School senior who wants us to come speak to her National Honor Society group. So. Ooh, Yay. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good. That's good well, news. so come on out and see us at Powell Observatory. And just for our members, a reminder that we do not have a general meeting in September. It is instead our annual picnic. And check your cosmic messenger for the details of that picnic. And if you have not sent in an RSVP to our social director, uh, please look at the first page of the Cosmic Messenger on how to get that information into him so that we will know how many to plan for. Does anybody have any closing remarks other than those? Um, I do not plan a second Saturday astronomy topic next month due to the Heart of America Star Party being on that same weekend. So our speakers and a lot of the people will be down there. Hey, so, let, let me say something about that when you're done there, Elizabeth. Sure. Uh, so uh, our next second uh, Saturday astronomy will be in uh, November and Denise Moser will be talking about observing the moon with telescopes. Great. Okay. Uh, the Heart of America Star Party. This is an event that we've had for probably 20 years now. We have our own dark sky site, which is south of Kansas City, about an hour and 15 minutes. And we we found the dark site by looking at maps of the, of the, night, the night sky and where it's going to be the darkest. And we've developed it as our own campground. It has a building, it has electrical, it has showers, the whole bit. So I don't know how many years ago, 10, 15 years ago, we started opening it up to other astronomers and we have what's called a star party once a year and uh, they have them all over the country. But we didn't have it last year. We have, we are gonna have it this year. And if you go to the Astronomical Society of Kansas City's website, askc.org, you can read all about it. The food will be catered for Friday, Saturday morning and Saturday night. Um, there's, like I said, you can bring a camper down, whatever, you know, or, or there's just a tent, or you can sleep in your car, which is what I have done. Um, and I welcome you to come down if you want to see some beautiful night skies and see some really cool stuff and big telescopes. Some of our club members have some giant ones. This would be a, a good opportunity for you. And just to reiterate what Jackie's saying, if you do decide that you're coming to the star party, our registration deadline is the 18th of September. So you have one more week to get your registration in. You can either register via the form that's in our newsletter, the Cosmic Messenger, 
or you can register on our website at www.askc.org and search for the Heart of America Star Party information and registration form there. So you've got one more week to decide and we hope that you'll be able to join us. Okay. All right. All right. Well, thanks everyone for a great evening. Thank you again, Jackie. You betcha. All right.